glad to be back. Uh, today, we are starting a new book. Yeah! We, yeah! Uh, are we on here? Am I? Can y'all hear coming through this or just... No? Uh, it was working earlier. Uh, so, hey! Woo! Uh, so, why are we going to start a new book? Why can't we just do, like, something fun? Why do we have to keep reading and studying books of the Bible? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, we want to read and study the Bible. Uh, we believe that God, this is God's Word. And that doesn't mean it's like a title. Like, this is something we call it. No, it's a reality. This is God's Word. He has spoken, and now it is written down for us to learn and to read about Him and ourselves. And yet often, we don't read it. We don't know it. We don't want to know it. We know every detail of every celebrity's life, right? Like who, where did Jay-Z and Beyonce go this week? Yeah, yeah. Anybody know like Jay-Z and Beyonce's kid's name? Yeah, so we know like all these things about celebrities, but yet often we don't know like whose names are like Abraham's kid's name. We know Jay-Z's kid's name. We don't know Abraham's kid's name. Right? We don't know our Bibles. We, that's why we're reading our Bibles together on Wednesdays. Guys, guys that were here in our group on Wednesday, what, did I, what was my final charge to you before you left uh, this building last week or on Wednesday? I said, don't be, don't be morons. Uh, don't be an idiot. Read your Bible. The way that you become wise, the way that you don't be a moron, don't be a fool, is to seek wisdom. And the way we do that is by reading and knowing our Bibles. So, we're going to keep going through books. At some point, we might do something different, but we're going to keep going through books for a while. So, we just finished Proverbs. Uh, and we actually haven't, since I've been here, actually gone through a book together. We, we started with the Sermon on the Mount for eight or ten weeks, and we did the parables of Jesus for eight or ten weeks, and then we spent a lot of time in uh, Proverbs for the last ten weeks, but we didn't go through from start to beginning. We just kind of picked and cho- chose some themes throughout. So we're going to go start to finish now the book of 1 John. Uh, this is the first time that we've also done an epistle. What's an epistle mean? What does this mean? You guys know this word? You'll hear it a lot in churches, but what does it mean? A letter. Okay, so John is writing a letter. Paul, in all these books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, he's writing letters to churches in Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi. John is writing a letter. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute, but also the reason we're, gonna, we're reading 1 John is this is a great follow-up to what we just read on our Wednesday time in discipleship. We read the Gospel of John. This is the same guy. And we're going to see lots of the same kind of themes worked out from his Gospel as we're going to see in this epistle. Uh, and finally, the reason we're going to do this one is because uh, you guys, if you guys were in uh, the main service last week, I gave you a, a, a Luther quote. Martin Luther said, every week I, che- I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they, what? You guys remember? They forget it. We forget the gospel. And John is not going to let us forget the gospel in this. So for the next 10 weeks, he's just going to pound you over the head with the gospel and beat it into submission into you. So I hope that over the next 10 weeks you begin to understand and love the gospel even more. So, let's go. Let's get to know this guy John and get to know this book. We're going to do a lot today. Uh, 
I should probably break up our, the sermon that we're going to do today into like eight sermons. But we're going to do a lot so we can get this done in ten weeks. We're going to finish First John before we go to camp. So we're going to do the whole first chapter today, which might be silly, but we're going to do it. Okay, so the Apostle John. John, what do we know about him? You guys know any trivia, any facts about this guy? Anything? Okay, good. He was one of the twelve. We know what he did before he was a disciple. Yeah, that he calls himself that in his gospel. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. We don't know if he means like I'm the one he loved most, or he loved all of us, and he, I just didn't, don't want to use my name, but he loved me. But he was certainly uh, part of one of Jesus's like inner circle. So he was there. Uh, in, at Jesus' transfiguration, he was there at the Garden of Gethsemane. Not all the twelve were at these places, but Jesus invited him uh, to be there, often with Peter and his brother John. Uh, he was at the foot of the cross when all of the other disciples had bailed. He was like the only one there. Jesus uh, told John, this guy, he told him, I want you to take care of my mother Mary. I'm gone. So Jesus uh, very much trusts John. He was a part of the inner circle of the twelve. And then he's also, like we said, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. There's some controversy about this, whether he's the same guy who wrote this, but I don't know if you can read these two and not decide that this is the same author. He's going to talk about so much of the same things that we just read on Wednesdays, about darkness and light, being born of God or born again. He talks about the love of God, remaining, abiding in God's love. These are all some of the same themes that we've seen on our Wednesdays. We know that John, after... Uh, Jesus ascended to heaven, went and pastured in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, among other places. Uh, This is probably why he writes to Ephesus among other some of the other churches in his what's another letter that John wrote? Another book in the New Testament, you guys know? Revelation. He writes to seven churches. We don't know if he pastored all these churches or just knew of them well, uh, but he's writing uh, to all these churches. So we don't know to whom he's writing in this book. But we know we, it might be a good guess to say he's writing to the Ephesians here also. Uh, and the reason why there's some confusion about who wrote the book and who he's writing to, why do you think, why is, it really, why is there usually not much confusion about who wrote Paul's letters and to whom he wrote? He says so right off the bat. He says something like, Paul, an apostle of God. Uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, right? He says, it's me who's writing, and here's who I'm writing to. John just goes for it. He doesn't have time to make introductions. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But let's, uh, yeah, let's read, let's read the first two verses here again. J.J. read the whole thing for us earlier, but John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So, it's like, like I said, he doesn't have time to say, hey, my name is John, to all you guys who are in Ephesus, he's just, he has something to say, and he's going for it. Remember we talked about like one of the first weeks I was here, about how the gospel of Jesus is a proclamation. It's something that happened in history. And this something that happened in history then changes all of life. 
This is what makes Christianity different than nearly all other world religions, which all other world religions are just kind of like some advice, some, uh, some self-help. This is what you should do to have a better relationship with God or with uh, other people. No, the gospel is something that happened. It is an announcement. And that's what John is saying. Here's what happened. And because this is what happened, I got to tell you because it's going to change everything. It's going to change your entire life and the way you see the entire world. So, the first thing that he says is he says, that which was from the beginning. Do you guys remember reading in the book of John, the gospel of John, something that this kind of reminds you of? That which was from the beginning? I'll give you a hint. It's also like the first verse of the gospel of John. What's, what's John 1, 1? How does he start his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He's saying the exact same thing. He's saying Jesus was before the creation of the world. Jesus has always been. He is just as God has been always in pre-eternity, right? He, God doesn't have a beginning. Jesus was exact, is exactly the same way. Uh, so he's saying here, if you have your sheets here, we're going to, he's, he's, confronting two heresies. Or what's a heresy? A false teaching. Something that's not right about God or Jesus or the gospel. So he's going to confront two heresies that were going on uh, probably in Ephesus or wherever John is writing to. That the first one is that Jesus was not fully God. Okay? So if he is... If he is not pre-eternal, then that means he was made. God, like, made him. And John is going to confront that right away. And incidentally, this is also a heresy of two major uh, religions today, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, who say that Jesus was either, like, a son of God that God later had, or he was, like, a preeminent figure, like, kind of like a, a chief angel, Right? They believe that Jesus is not the pre-existing Son of God. They believe that he is not fully God. And apparently John is writing, countering uh, a similar heresy here. And then he's also countering, though, that he is, some people are also saying that he's not fully man. John says, that which we have seen from the beginning, which we touched with our hands, which we saw with our eyes, we heard his voice. Apparently, some of these guys were teaching that Jesus wasn't really a man. He looked like a man. Uh, he looked and appeared to have a body, but you couldn't really touch him if you wanted to. You know that whole story, the cheesy story about, you know, there was only one set of footprints on the beach, and the reason was because Jesus was carrying you all along. Well, as silly as that is, that couldn't have even happened because Jesus didn't have a body to make footprints, right? So th there were some people that were teaching this, probably because uh, some Greeks at the time said that everything physical is bad. Everything spiritual is good. So our bodies are bad. Our bodies are corruptible. And if Jesus is really God, then he couldn't have had this evil body. But this is an important belief of ours, that Jesus actually was a man, that he actually had a body, that he was fully God and fully man at the same time. So John says, uh, yeah, we touched him. We touched him with our hands. Later on, in chapter 4, he's going to say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He actually had a body. 
there were many, and then in his next letter, 2 John, he says, for many deceivers or false teachers like we've been talking about have gone out into the world, those who do not, do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. But John is saying, no, he actually had a body. We touched him. We felt him. And not only uh, when he was teaching and healing, but when he was resurrected, we touched him. He says, I know that sounds crazy to you. Even we thought he was a spirit. In the book of Luke, uh, Jesus comes to them and he says, Behold my hands and feet and touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's saying, not only did I have a body when I was teaching and healing, but now that I have been resurrected, I'm not just a spirit, I, this is my resurrected body. And John is saying, I know this because I touched his body. I felt him. I saw him. I heard him. This is all of what he's saying in our first two or three verses here. He said, we actually felt his skin. We actually felt the holes in his hands and feet. If you want to hear more about what we saw and heard, go read my gospel. Okay? John is claiming to be an eyewitness to all this. And this is one of the most important parts of our faith, that the gospel accounts are actually eyewitness accounts made by uh, the, the apostles or those close to the apostles to say this is what we actually saw and heard. Incidentally, one of your, if you take like an intro to religion or intro to philosophy course uh, at UNM or any other college in a couple years or next year, this is going to be one of the things that is brought up, that these, these aren't eyewitness accounts, that they're probably written down a couple hundred years after Jesus. They were just writing down some tall tales like Hercules or Zeus. And if that's true, if they're right, then our faith is gone. We have no basis to believe that this is actually factual. But we do have great reason to trust in the reliability of the Gospels as eyewitness accounts. Incidentally, that's why we'll spend an entire evening on this this summer. We talk about the reliability of the Gospel accounts as eyewitness accounts. So, John is saying, I was there. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. So you'd better listen to what I have to say about him. And what he's going to say is, the whole incarnation, the whole God becoming man part, and the whole resurrection part might sound crazy, but what the really crazy part is, is this. Verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying, the crazy part, the thing that I want you to hear is that you might have fellowship with God. John's gonna, John might be saying, all right, I know lots of you guys in Ephesus aren't Jews. You're Asian, you're Greek, you live in Turkey. Uh, so you might not have a great understanding of the Old Testament. You might not have a great understanding of what has happened with God and his people before. But you see, people have never quite had fellowship with God like we have now. Moses, one of our great fathers, was told to remove his sandals for he is standing on holy ground. When Moses was getting the law from God, the people couldn't even touch the mountain that Moses was on or they would die. One time, the Ark of the Covenant was being transported and it was like tipping off and some guy tried to steady it and he was struck dead immediately. This guy did not have close, intimate fellowship with God. He was struck dead when he came into fellowship with God. This might sound harsh to you, people of Ephesus, but I'll tell you why this has to be in just a minute. 
For now, though, let me tell you that the reason Jesus came is so that we might have deep fellowship with God, that we might know Him intimately. Jesus didn't just come to improve our relationships. He didn't just come to save us from, from hell and save us from our sins. Yes, those are true. But He came so that we might have fellowship with God, that God might get great glory by saving people, saving sinners. He came so that we might receive the very life of God. Remember when I wrote in my Gospel, when I told you about how when Jesus came to Nicodemus, and that Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be born again or receive the life of God from above? This is why Jesus came, so that we might receive the life of God and have fellowship with Him. At the Passover meal, Jesus washed our feet, our, the disciples' feet, our feet. How He told us to abide in Him and remain in Him, that we might have His life. That just like leaves and branches receive the life from the tree, this is the life uh, that Jesus is come to give us. The very life of God comes into believers. And that's incredible. This is amazing stuff. That we might have fellowship with God. And then he says, I, everyone who is believing this, is experiencing this fellowship. We are daily experiencing fellowship with God. We can now pray to Him like we never could. We don't have to go once a year and sacrifice lambs and doves and uh, pour out drink offerings and all of these things so that God might forgive us. No, because of the once and forever sacrifice of Jesus, now we have always fellowship with God. This is incredible. We have actual fellowship, continuing and ongoing fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. So, we want you to have this fellowship also. We want you to have this also. This is why I'm writing this letter to you. That you might have fellowship with us, that is, share in the fellowship that we're experiencing with the Trinity. And if you have fellowship with us, then you are having fellowship with God. And then, above all, in verse 4, then he says, we are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. You might think he'd say, I'm writing these things to you so that your joy might be complete, right? That you might experience this fellowship. But he's saying, this would give me such great joy for you to experience this. And in fact, my joy is going to kind of be lacking until you experience this deep, deep fellowship like we do. So a couple quick observations, real quick. Why is John writing this letter? He'll continue to give more reasons as we go along, but the initial reasons he gives are so that they, the Ephesians, or to whomever he's writing, will have deep fellowship with John and therefore have deep fellowship with God. And that, so John's joy will be complete. He longs for them to repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. So, in your blanks here, these two applications. These are the things that I want you to feel in the next ten weeks. A deep and sure fellowship with God. John's going to rail against false assurance. People who think they have fellowship with God, but actually don't. And I hope that's going to come come out in the next 10 weeks. If you don't actually have fellowship with God, it's going to become pretty clear. And I want you to feel those things just like John is feeling those things. But for those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus, who are repenting of sin and believing in what God has done for them, we have a deep and sure fellowship with God. So be encouraged by these things. We want to, I want you to feel a deep assurance if you're trusting in what Jesus has done for you. And the second thing is a deep compassion for those who don't believe. It's like John says, his joy is going to be kind of lacking. Paul in Romans 9 says he's in deep anguish 
because his Jewish brothers aren't believing in Jesus. They have a deep compassion. They, if, if, what is, if what they're believing is true, if it's actually true, then it's changed their lives and they want it to be true of their brothers and sisters as, for, for them as well. So now, for the rest of chapter 1, John is going to tell us what prevents this fellowship with God and then what preserves or keeps fellowship with God. So before getting into the first thing that prevents fellowship, John's going to give us a principle. Let's read it in verse 5. He says, This is the message we have heard from him, from Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John says, here it is. Here's the message that we heard from Jesus. Here's the message that we want to give you. If you miss this, you'll miss everything else. What would you expect him to say? What's the most important thing from Jesus' teaching on earth that you would expect John to tell us? What do you think? If you could like sum up the message of Jesus in like one little phrase, what would you, what would you say? Great, from John's gospel, right? So Jesus is saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. What, what else? Maybe not from John's gospel, but if we could... What are, what are like some important things about Jesus in the gospel that you would expect John to say right up front? Here it is. Here's, if you, here's, what, I need you, here's what I need you to hear. Salvation. 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 Yeah. Jesus is going to save us from our sins, so repent and believe in him, maybe. What else? Love. Even God is love. John's going to tell us that in 1 John 4. He's going to say God is love. So we would expect maybe... Even if God was go- or John was going to tell us something about God, we would expect him to say something about his love, his, um, his righteousness, something like this, right? You guys have any other thoughts about what you would expect John to say? Here's the message we heard Jesus proclaim. Have any other thoughts? Yeah, well, he doesn't say any of those. He says God is light. What? Why does he say this? Why, do we, why does he say, this is what I want you to hear, first and foremost, that God is light? Because, he's going to say, before we get to fellowship with God, the first principle is that we must start with God. Over and over and over again in the Bible, we see that for us to properly understand ourselves, we have to first properly understand God. Okay, this is a long quote, but I put it up on here because it's so good. There's a, there's a pastor, preacher in England in the early to mid-1900s named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says this. Pay attention. This is really good. He says, So I must always be careful not to start with myself. It is very difficult not to do so. Our whole approach to the gospel and to Christianity naturally tends to be that from that self-centered and selfish standpoint. We argue something like this. Here I am in this world with its troubles, and I am ill at ease. I'm looking for something that I have not got. I'm aware of my needs and my desires. I'm aware of a lack of happiness. So he's saying, we, we naturally do this. We say, something's not quite right. I'm not quite satisfied. I'm not quite happy. Uh, and the tendency for most of us is to approach the whole subject of religion, to approach God and Christian truth and everything else in terms of my desires and my demands. So I'm not happy. I'm not content. I'm not satisfied. I need something else. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I need something here. So, 
What has he got to say to me and to give to me? That's God. What can I get out of this Christian faith and religion? Is there something in this that is going to ease my problems and help me in this dark and difficult world? But that, according to this verse, according to 1 John 1.5, and indeed according to the whole of the Bible, is the root source of error. It is the initial fallacy. It is indeed almost blasphemy against God. The first answer of the gospel can always, in effect, be put in this way. Forget yourselves. Forget your needs and your desires. And contemplate God. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him. Not that your needs and mine can suddenly be met by the gospel, but rather that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Immediately we start with God and not with ourselves. So John starts here. He starts with God and not with ourselves. So now that we've started with God, that God is totally light, that there is no sin in him at all, we get three things that are going to prevent fellowship with this infinitely holy, magnificent, light-filled God. So apparently there were some false teachers that were teaching that Jesus wasn't really human and that they were teaching these three lies. They, They taught three lies to this church. The first lie is this that our sin doesn't break fellowship with God. 1.6, John says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, there's a reason that people in the Old Testament were killed immediately when they came into contact with the holy and no darkness, only light God. Darkness and light cannot coexist. Think about it. Have you guys ever been in a cave? You guys been spelunking? Any spelunkers in the house? Yes, okay. So, it is dark. If you turn off your light, it is dark. Put your hand right here, and you cannot see it. There is no light. What happens when you turn on a light? You can see, and the darkness goes away. Does darkness, do darkness and light compete can you have, like, if I turn on the light in here, is there, like, little pockets of darkness that I can, like, walk through and not see my hand? No, the light consumes all of darkness. They cannot coexist. The light gets rid of all darkness. It swallows up and destroys the dark. The holiness of God will not allow for sin and for darkness. They cannot coexist. They cannot be together. And we see in the Bible that there are two kingdoms. There is a kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, and then the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. I hope you guys have been hopefully, or hopefully been reading this week in Ephesians 2, as we'll read and talk about on Wednesday, is that we were all born into this kingdom of darkness. This is what we saw in Wreck-It Ralph last night, right? The people in Sugar Rush are enslaved. Their minds do not remember who the true king is, right? That's what we sang uh, in the song from Ephesians 1 and 2, that we are naturally children of wrath, that we don't want God, that we are born into the kingdom of darkness, and the king of darkness is the king that we love most. We hate the king and the kingdom of light. So, Lloyd-Jones says, in this first verse, when we're walking in darkness, walking in darkness represents everything that is opposed to God, everything that is opposed to his holiness and perfection, 
everything that is opposed to his desires for the world and man. John is saying that by denying that sin is a big deal, you completely miss who God is and miss who you are entirely. That is to say, if you walk in darkness or if you live in continual and unrepentant sin, John is saying you don't have fellowship with God. In fact, you're not even a Christian. We'll talk more about this. Like I said, I wish I could spend an hour on that one verse. We'll spend more on this even next week. John's going to keep hammering this idea of walking in sin and walking in light. So we'll talk more about this as we go for the next ten weeks. But John is saying, if you're walking in darkness, if you're living in continual and unrepentant sin, you don't have fellowship with God. The second lie then he gives us, apparently some false teachers were saying that we don't have a sinful nature. Verse 8, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And this is similar to the first lie, but John here isn't talking about walking in sin, like specific acts of unrepentant sin, but about our very nature. Apparently, these teachers were at best teaching that maybe we just had some bad habits that needed some cleaning up. But no. On Wednesday, in our group, we were reading Ephesians 1, I talked about how silly it would be if you had, what's, what's the symptom of like a throbbing shoulder and like a tingling left hand? Left shoulder and a left hand. What does that generally indicate? A heart attack, right? If I have this deep throb in my shoulder and tingling hand, I know that a heart attack is coming. How silly would it be if I just was like, hey, anybody got any ibuprofen? My shoulder really hurts. Right? This is really annoying. That would be really dumb, right? What I should do is go to the hospital immediately because a heart attack is coming. John is saying, you stupid people. You are just treating some symptoms and rather than your heart. John is saying our nature, your, the constant influence that causes you to sin must change, not just cleaning up some bad habits. So the question shouldn't be, man, why did I do that? But what in me caused me to think that that was a good idea, to be convinced that that sin was good for me, that it was actually good, and then to do it? What caused that And the only answer can be what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's why we're saying how great it will be to be absent from flesh. Not necessarily just absent from our bodies, but absent from a flesh that wants to sin, wants to do what is displeasing to God. So, John's saying, If you deny that you are at your core a rebel, glad to remain under the kingdom of darkness and in need of a merciful heart transformation, then you're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. You don't have fellowship with God. The third lie, then, is in verse 10, that we don't need forgiveness. This might be a little hard to see, but John says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Why do we make God a liar if we say that we haven't sinned? What does he mean by this? If you say that you have not sinned, you make God a liar. How is that? You guys think, why is God a liar if we say that? Any thoughts? It's kind of hard. Yeah, he says all throughout the Bible that you are a sinner. So if you say, I'm not a sinner, then one of you is a liar. 
In fact, John's going to say over and over, the reason that Jesus came was to save us from our sins. This lie is also similar to the first, saying that, uh, that we can walk in darkness and not break fellowship with God. But it's basically saying, nope, I'm good, God. Not only is my sin not a big deal, but I don't need forgiveness. I was preparing for this on Thursday, and on my drive home, there was a car in front of me that had a bumper sticker that said, uh, born okay the first time. Thanks, though. What's, he, what's this bumper sticker saying? Don't need to be born again. So the people, the, our culture that says, you, you must be born again, he's saying, nope, I don't need to be born again. I'm good the first time. He's saying, I don't need forgiveness. I don't need God to forgive me because my sin is not a big deal at all. Thanks, though. And before we, like, say, hey, that guy was really silly to think that, don't we do the same? Don't we think the exact same thing? Aren't there things in your life that the Bible is quite clear that is sinful, that is rebellion against God, that you think, eh, not the big of a deal, that we minimize? We say, no big deal. Maybe someday I'll maybe kind of clean this up, stop doing this, start doing this. And we justify our sin in all sorts of ways. It wasn't my fault. Who cares? John is saying, if this is, if this is the lie that you believe, if this is the way you're living, minimizing your sin, saying that it doesn't need forgiveness, you don't have fellowship with God. And again, we should spend a whole sermon, a whole morning just on that one. We'll keep talking about this more and more over the next 10 weeks. So, what do we do then? What are, what are the antitheses? What are the opposites of these lies? What, preser- what preserves or keeps fellowship with God? John says that believing these lies are not only a big deal that we must pay attention to, do, to, but if you believe these lies, you're not a Christian. So how do you have fellowship with God? So, rather than denying that sin breaks fellowship with God, what should we do? He says, walk in the light. This is the first thing. Instead of denying that sin breaks fellowship with God by walking in darkness, rather, walk in the light. Verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, is John saying that we now never sin? You guys think that? That what he's saying is say is just walking in the light mean you stop sinning? No, how do we know that John doesn't mean that? Because he told us if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? So we'll talk more about that next week also. But I think what he's saying is by walking in the light, is if we see God more clearly, if we see him holy without sin, as light without dark, then our sin will also be illuminated. All right, you guys have zits and blackheads, right? I do too. How do you see them more clearly? How do you find them to pop those suckers? Do you do it in a dark bedroom? Where do you go? The bathroom. What's in the bathroom? A mirror. And how do you see them even better? Turn on all the lights, right? Those really hot, bright lights that really see every little pore, right? The only way you can see all these little blemishes is by having great light, right? So when we see God as light, our sin becomes illumined, becomes lit up. Have you guys ever been around like a really, really, really godly 
man or woman, like a 75-year-old man or woman, that are just this, this old woman is just exuding joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. Scripture is just pouring out of her mouth as she's memorized it for the last 75 years. Have you, have you guys been around a person like this? Don't you kind of feel when you're around someone like that? Don't you become like more aware of how you are not peaceful, how you are not patient and kind and self-controlled? And don't you kind of like feel guilty about how you're not memorizing Scripture and want to be like that? You guys feel that? I have in my life. Well, multiply that by an infinity, and I think this might be what John is saying. When we see God for who he really is, we will see our sin for what it really is, and we will begin to hate it. We'll begin to loathe it and want to not be in that anymore, not want to walk in darkness anymore, but want to walk in the light. We'll see God accurately, and then we'll see ourselves accurately. So remember when I said that Lloyd-Jones says that walking in darkness was being in complete opposition to the kingdom of light? He says that walking in the light, then, is the antithesis and exact opposite of walking in darkness. Therefore, it doesn't mean that I claim absolute perfection, right? We don't stop sinning. Uh, But it does mean that I claim that I now belong to a different realm, to the kingdom of light and to the kingdom of God. In that kingdom, alas, I may be most unworthy, but though unworthy, I am in it. I am in that kingdom, and I belong to it, and I'm walking in the realm of light. We see our sin, and we hate it. If we refuse to face our sin, that means that we refuse the light, and we actually very much dislike the light, which then leads us to, our sec- to the second thing. Rather than, deny- the, rather than the second lie of denying our sinful nature, we confess our sins both to God and to each other. Remember, when we walk in the light, we're honest about our sin. We hate it, and we want to have fellowship with God and fellowship with others. So this means specifically. We don't just say, well, I'm just a sinner. God's made me this way. Right? God's God's grace is is bigger than all this. He's going to forgive me, so I don't need to actually confess. Yes, He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, But how does he do that? By first, us confessing our sin to him. Not to just to him, but to confess to others when we sin against each other. We spent a whole hour on this at the Claris Conference. Timothy Lane talked about confessing our sin to each other and needing and asking for forgiveness of others. Go back and listen to that if you missed it. So we see our sin clearly. We hate it. We confess it to God and to others, and we ask for forgiveness. And then lastly... Rather than believing the third lie of denying our need for forgiveness, we trust in the blood of Jesus. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What can wash away my sin? Let's answer that question. We sing it. What? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's Blood and righteousness. All other ground than Jesus' blood is sinking sand. So we trust in it. We trust in it when we first believe in him, and we trust in it for the rest of our lives. It cleanses us. It forgives us. And it also sanctifies us. It makes us more like him. So 
walking in the light doesn't mean that we become sinless, but it does mean that we sin less. You might have heard someone say this, right? We sin less because we hate our sin. We want to be out of darkness and in the light. We hate our sin. We confess it, and then we trust in Jesus to not only cleanse us and purify us, but to make us more like him. So fellowship with God is a major, major message of Jesus' gospel. Fellowship with God is maybe the major message of 1 John. But we must first see God clearly. Is this going to look familiar to you? When we see God clearly, we have a great growing awareness of His holiness. Then, because of that, we have a great and growing awareness of our own sin. and We hate it. And because of those two things, then we trust in a great and good, sacrificing Savior Savior who will cleanse us from our sin and give us deep fellowship with God. It's the cross chart. If you couldn't see my hands, right? Uh, So, this is what we're going to talk about for the next ten weeks. A deep and sure fellowship with God. So, that was really long much longer than normal. So we don't have as much time for small groups, but we're still going to do it. So let's break up and talk about these lies and these truths.